I'm not going to use PowerPoint this afternoon. Uh, this is not uh, a gesture. It's simply I ran out of time before I was coming to prepare, for which I apologise. So uh, it'll give you just a few minutes without dear PowerPoint. What I, I want to talk about is not so much learning from London. Uh, I mean, there are things we can learn. I'm always intrigued by what all cities tell us about all other cities. On the travel broadens the mind principle. Uh, whenever I visit another city, Paris, New York, any of the cities with which we regularly compare London, um, it's intriguing to me how much just hearing other people, as we just have, talking about the cities they know well and the institutions that work in them and the way the city functions, that um, you, know, you immediately start thinking differently about the city you live in, be it London or Manchester or Leeds or Birmingham or wherever. So what I want to do is not so much talk about London, but about some of the aspects of London's government which uh, are suggestive of general issues or general uh, principles that affect all government in cities. Because, of course, city government varies everywhere. All, never two, no two systems exactly the same as far as I can see anywhere, certainly not among the world's largest cities. And having uh, watched the presentation about Paris, and the, you could hear in the presentation this sort of struggle, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way, because I'm about to say London has the same struggle, between how do you manage the region, the built-up area, and the central part of the city? All cities have a region, uh, an urban area, and then a centre, a centre, the bit that we all understand. But wherever you live in London or Paris, you understand the city centre. It's the common area. When most people talk about Paris, certainly if they're British, I'm just passing a guess, or London, frankly, if they're British, what they mean is the tourist bit in the middle. They're not generally talking, in London's case, about Croydon, wonderful though it is, or Enfield, wonderful though it is. And so there's a sort of common version of the city in the middle. So what's intriguing to me about London's government and the thing that it has, it's a government for the built-up area. That's how it was designed. In 1965, when the boundaries were put where they are today, the boundaries were drawn where the, effectively where the city had stopped growing, where the green belt had been imposed, actually, a big planning decision some years before. In fact, some bits of the built-up area were put outside in the House of Lords. Can you believe it? There were votes in the House of Lords about whether Rygate was it Epping, Epsom and Ewell, I think it was, should be in London. Epsom and Ewell in a different world would have been a London borough, so would Rygate and Banstead. So, but most of London's built-up area is in London. But the rest of the city region, another 10 million people, are not. And indeed the weakness of the government compared with the Ile-de-France arrangement, I mean, the Ile-de-France arrangements are not particularly strong, but at least they exist. At least there is a conscious, you know, kind of, have statistics and think about the Ile de France. Whereas the greater southeast, which is the broad equivalent, so London plus the southeast and east, you can add the statistics for the three together. There are, I think, two meetings a year of London and the boroughs and the areas around it. But this is not government. And uh, those of one or two in the audience who are long in the tooth will remember Surplan, uh, which sort of came and went an attempt to at least to have some voluntary planning over this area. But London doesn't do regional planning at all, I would argue. I mean, it's minimal. But it does do city-wide government. So that's something uh, that intrigues me. Now, the Grand Paris um, 
exercise, it seems to me, is an attempt to do something for the built-up area broadly. It's an attempt to do something a bit like Greater London for Paris. But, of course, it carries with it the complexity. You end up with government at the Ile-de-France level, the Grand Paris level, and the central area level, which is such a powerful institution, particularly given how fragmented uh, government is in the Paris region outside uh, the Ile de outside the city itself. If we think London or the southeast government is fragmented compared with inside the Ile de France, uh, it is actually a large collection of large authorities in Britain. Our counties and districts are big compared with the an analogous ones uh, in Paris. The other thing that's very unusual about the London government system within the built-up area is the two spheres. Sphere is a word I picked up from a Canadian minister. Sphere doesn't imply hierarchy. And the reason that I don't imply hierarchy is that the boroughs collectively in London spend twice as much as the mayor. And in fact, if you talk to most people in London about government, they talk about the council not about the mayor. They may know who Sadiq Khan or Boris Johnson were. They sort of know that they're responsible for the tube, possibly indirectly for the police. But they don't really think of London-wide government as being, of London government as necessarily only being the mayor. So that's an important qualification. And having two levels in government has a whole load of implications that I'll come on to in a moment. Because the London boroughs are collaborative and um, competitive. So on the one hand, they'll work together, they'll defend each other's sovereignty, they see each other as equals, sort of. But when it comes to um, com competition, they compete for development. They actually compete for development. Uh, and increasingly, they will only be able to raise additional money by building more. That's the way the new local government finance system will operate almost entirely from the end of this decade. And what that means is that they are... Um, decision-making in their own area. They can think for themselves. So each of these boroughs is a lobby for its own population. And it has to work with the mayor, and I'll come back to this, in, the, in a kind of fixed system where they have to understand each other. The mayor can occasionally overrule the boroughs on the London plan, particularly for major developments. But generally, they are sort of co-equal. And in, arguably, the boroughs collectively are more powerful than the mayor. An intriguing bottom-heavy two-tier system. That affects a whole load of things. Uh, I'll come back to that in a moment. Our planning system, I didn't want to say too much, everybody in the room knows more than me about planning in London, in England, but what we have is a planning system which started off life as a planning system, you know, to appeal to the council if you wanted to build something, they'd either give you planning permission or not, but which in London, in particular, has become fused with a tax system, because big developments in London now pay for stuff. That's not what the planning, no, somebody will tell me, this is not what the planning system started out at, is it? It was a different thing. Now, planning system is inexorably tangled up with paying for rebuilding Battersea Power Station, for example, or building a new tube line. So that creates all sorts of pressures on the planning system and indirectly, therefore, on the, or very directly, on the boroughs and the mayor to ramp up development densities to pay for stuff which previously would have been paid for by taxpayers. So the planning system in London has a profound impact on the quality of design, the scale of development, the density, uh, and so on. So this is a, a, a you know, a... Um, a system that is 
configured in the way it is, it tells us something about what's good and bad for all cities. Some of this is good, some of it's not so good, but it's something from which we can all learn. Now, the thing that is particularly interesting to me about the uh, London system is that it's a unique one and its structures affect the way the city develops and, to some extent, the design of the way the city develops. The most obvious way of looking at this is the skyline. Play this following mind game with me. Imagine in 1965 there hadn't been set up 32 boroughs, but just a single citywide authority, only the GLC, or today only the GLA. This is rather how New York City government works. There's a single level of government. Five boroughs have very little power. And there's a zoning system which sets rules for all parts of the city. And what you get is a skyline that concentrates, generally, high buildings in some places. Now in London, 33 authorities make their own decisions. So if you start to go on to the, at the uh, excellent, uh, slightly retro bar at the top of the St George's Hotel at Langham Place, and look west over Westminster and Kensington and Chelsea. There's a few 60s um, concrete block hotels that were built with grants at the time. But other than that, the skyline is actually not unlike Paris's. It's a sort of six, seven-storey look the other way, and it's a high-rise city. And that's because the city of London and Tower Hamlets and Southwark and, to some extent, Islington under some of its owners have had a different policy. So the skyline is heavily dependent on the fragmented system of government. Why is there a forest of towers growing along the south bank of the river? It's because it's the northern edge of six boroughs, which had been industrial for years. Left un, you know, just left as wharves and bits of the port and so on. And as the London property market has rocketed ahead in recent years, that empty land has become available. But each borough is doing its own planning in this northern part of itself. And so you get a whole series of decisions and then an enormous backlash of uh, campaigners saying, well, why don't we have a skyline policy? So how would, we, how would we have a skyline policy? Who would tell the boroughs not to develop, given, remember, that the development actually produces revenue for them? Section 106 community infrastructure levy, and now huge uplifts in business rate and council tax as well. They need the development, otherwise they have no money. Now, so if you say, well, we're not going to have any more development, nothing we see from the central area north of the river, which is what some of the campaigning sometimes sounds like, then um, that would mean that the southern boroughs couldn't develop and would have less revenue. Would, other, would somebody compensate them for that? Well, I don't think they would. So the point I'm trying to drive home here is that the very structure of London government generates things like the particular skyline we have, made no better, I might add, by uh, policies about viewing corridors, which you know, create fingers uh, overlapping like scissors, where you can put towers here and there, reinforcing the fragmentation. So the, the, the structure of government affects the skyline, I would argue. It also has a very positive effect, which it's avoided vast concentrations of social housing. Because each of the 33 boroughs and it, their predecessors had to have their own policies about social housing, have to house homeless people, have their own social housing. In fact, almost wherever you go in London, there are relatively affluent households and social housing within 150 metres of each other. 
certainly three or four hundred metres of each other. There is social housing just south of Oxford Street. There is social housing all over Pimlico. So it's not as if we've created enormous uh, outside, uh, areas outside the city with huge social housing estates, because in some ways the boroughs, though we have got one or two of those, they're not nearly as big as they might have been because the boroughs built them at borough scale. The biggest ones we have were ones built by the GLC or, the, or the, by the GLC. They did build at scale. Thamesmead, Roehampton, actually, that was the LCC. But so bigger governments will build you bigger social housing areas. We don't think that's a good idea anymore, I think. So actually, again, the structure of government has to some extent fragmented social housing and fragmented or created the particular very loose structure uh, in so many different ways that London is famous for. And I would say to people who say, well, perhaps we need fewer boroughs, be careful what you ask for. Would it really be better if we had five boroughs? They'd be very big. You know, each one would be 50% bigger than Birmingham. And I'm not sure they'd be very local at that point. So I would argue that London's two-tier system also allows, one final point, outer areas and poorer boroughs to have their own lobby. Because each one has its own council with its own councillors, it is a lobby to keep its, its um, needs to development and its population's needs on the agenda. I think it's far harder, again, if you imagine and play the mind game of a single government trying to do everything from one central point, to do that. And the reason for that is, you know, cities, big cities are infinite. If you know one part of the city, the bit you live in, or another part you used to live in, or a third part where you've worked, but the other 95% is just hard to imagine. And so trying to plan it all from one point is always going to be difficult. Trying to plan it from 32 points or 33 points in London, not always that easy, but you might easy. At least the people who are doing it have a mind's eye view about when they talk to designers and architects and others, what the place is like, how it functions, what's it like at three in the morning. Important point. Now, I'm nearly done. A few final thoughts, really. So the first one, which I've already said four times, so I won't say again, well, I will say again, actually, um, is that city government and governance arrangements affect the look and shape of a city. They really affect the structure of it, its flexibility, its capacity to change. You don't just get one policy for the whole city. If one borough doesn't like towers, another one will. One borough wants to ban a film. This has happened in living memory. Another borough next door will show it in the cinemas. Flexibility means the capacity to compete and to change and to be flexible. And this is very important for London. Second, this, I haven't mentioned this up till now at all, but I was just thinking listening to the previous presentation. I'm always struck by the fact that transport and planning, which we undoubtedly dignify with enormous importance, and rightly so in cities, because they're very important. In, every, in my view, they are necessary but not sufficient. For Londoners here, think about the Victoria Line. Victoria Line, now massively improved, it must be said, has run its length from Walthamstow to Brixton, apart from a few a couple of early years when it didn't quite go the whole distance, um, since the mid-1960s. And yet, at the North End, very, very well connected to the West End, places like Seven Sisters, Black Horse Road, Tottenham Hale, Walthamstow Central, they're 15, 18 to 19 minutes from Oxford Circus, and they have been since the 1960s. Yet, not quite enough 
for that area, which is now developing, but to develop and to become uh, better off. Yet in King's Road in the Chelsea, in, uh, King's Road in Chelsea, very rich indeed, virtually no public transport really. I mean, once you get to Sloane Square, that's it. So I, I, I'm not saying we don't need transport, of course we do. I'm just making the point that it's more than transport and planning that makes areas successful uh, in, in a city. And uh, that leads me to my last two points, really. One is, uh, of the two, uh, we talk a lot about government, and I'm interested, very interested, over-interested in government, uh, but every time I do a talk, particularly for visitors from overseas, I point out the fact that after 40 minutes of listening to me grinding on about government systems, it's developers in the end who drive the city forward, London in particular, without developers who are now, I would argue, almost a parastatal element, uh, which, you know, boroughs and city hall and the government use to deliver change, along with architects and the people who work with developers, um, they're hugely important. They have been for three or four hundred years in London, at at precisely delivering what the city becomes. And so never underestimate the need to regulate, to work with, to love, to understand developers. And my final point, um, obvious I know, is that, of course, despite all our discussions, and I'm more interested, to say, than anybody in planning, structures, transport, all of this, the reason all this matters, of course, is that the people, we, in many cases, who live in all of this, have to feel that it's accountable, government system, know that we can have some access to the people who make decisions, because without that, there is disconnection. But that it is, in the end, the people who live in a city and who influence its government in democracies, great democracies like France and Britain, who it is they and what they want for the city that really matters. So I'll leave you with that thought. Thank you very much.